Well, let's continue on in John chapter 11 tonight. The Scripture tells us He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He is the God of the living. And we are in John 11. We're going to look at, again, the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, We talked about on Sunday morning, we took uh, snippets out of it, bits and pieces, but I realized in studying how much here would be missed if we just kind of left it at what we talked about Sunday. So we're going to walk through verse by verse and look at the whole passage together. And Father, we thank You that You are the God of the living. We thank You that unlike as we talked about on Sunday, there are some who think I was born, I blinked and it was over. We know that in Christ Jesus that we are born and we blink and yes, life goes by in a flash, Father, but we continue with You. You have promised us this, not only in some vague, esoteric way, but You promised us and then told us exactly what it would look like. And I thank You for that. I thank You for the great comfort. Even as we talk about some of these things tonight, we talk about loss and how You interact with that and deal with that, and we talk about, Father, Your raising of Lazarus and why and what happened and everything. Lord, I pray that You would bring strength to our faith and comfort to our souls. And Father, increase our trust in You. I thank You so much that we can come to You at any time. And we do tonight, asking that You will walk us through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we left off. Jesus was staying in Bethany beyond Jordan. Bethany beyond Jordan is about 25 miles east of Jerusalem, just across the Jordan River. And a distress call came to Jesus at that place from another Bethany. The Bethany that's on the back slopes of the Mount of Olives, just two miles walking distance from Jerusalem. You walk up the mount, over the mountain, down, and you're in Jerusalem, so much closer. The distress call came from the two sisters, Mary and Martha, for their brother Lazarus. I remind you, if you weren't here on Sunday, Lazarus' name, Eleazar in the Hebrew, Lazarus in the Greek, is whom God helps. Whom God helps. Now a certain man was sick, verse 1, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now this anointing was apparently very well known in the first century church. John mentions it here because people would go, oh yeah, Mary, right, that Mary. There were a bunch of Marys running around, you all are aware of that. And so he said, this, this Mary is the one who anointed Jesus' feet. They already knew the story. Now we'll hear the story in full in John chapter 12. Which John hasn't told the story yet, but obviously believers had already heard it. But in verse 3, we're told, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when He heard that He was sick, He then stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Now a couple of things to note about love and about glory. We're told twice here that Jesus loved Lazarus, He's the one whom you love, the sisters said, and 
Then John tells us Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, all three. But in these two mentions of the word, there are two different words in the Greek. When they say, he whom you love is sick, it's the word phileo, it's brotherly love. But when John says, for Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, he uses the word agapao, unconditional love. Why the change? I want to give you tonight six always statements. Maybe more. Maybe seven. That will round it out more completely. Always statements. And the first one is this. The love of God is always greater than we believe. The love of God is always greater than we believe. You see, the sister said, He whom you love as a friend, your good friend, the one you love like a friend, is sick. And John says, Yeah, but Jesus loved Lazarus more than a friend. Loved him unconditionally. Loved him to the full extent. And so both of these words are used, but the love of God is always greater than we believe. I need to hear that sometimes. Because we tend to view God from a human perspective, and oftentimes we don't give Him credit for the amount of love He truly has for each one of us. If we did, then shame wouldn't weigh so heavily on us. If we did, then guilt wouldn't mow us down. If we believed, if we understood the love that God has for us, other than the love that we think He has, it's always greater. It's always bigger than we realize. Because of this, I think it's the reason for that one little word in verse 6 that doesn't make any sense to me, and it's the word so. Listen to verse 5 and 6 again together. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that he was sick, he raced to him as quickly as he could. Now that's my love. That's your love. We got a problem? Run to it. Let me show you I care. I'll be there in a heartbeat, in a minute. But the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't seem like the right word. It should say something like, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's not the word. It's it's the word uh, un in Greek, and it's a marker of result. Therefore, because now get this, because it's a different take than I've realized before. Because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much, he stayed in the place where he was longer. It's because Jesus loved them that he did not rush to them. How does that work? It works because not only is the love of God always greater than we believe, get this, the glory of God is always heavier than we conceive. The glory of God is always heavier than we conceive. He makes this comment back there in verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It's doxa in the Greek, but in the Hebrew it's kabod. That Greek word simply means greatness, honor, grandeur, glory. But the Hebrew word, you Bible students know, kabod means heavy. It means weighty. It means full. The glory of God is a heavy, weighty thing. And experiencing God's glory is no frivolous thing. Remember, it was the glory of God that made Moses' face glow and radiate. It was the glory of God that chased the priests right out of the temple. 
It was the glory of God that ruined Isaiah, grounded Ezekiel, blinded Paul, and flatlined John. The glory of God is not a trifling thing. It's nothing like, well, the glory of man, or the glory of other beings, other gods, little g. The glory given to idols that you can mess with and trifle with. The glory of God, wonderful, marvelous, amazing to be sure, but light and easy, not in the least. It's always heavier than we can conceive. And with that in mind, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. In another place, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For God's glory to shine in you, for God's glory to be reflected off of you, is a heavy thing. It is a weighty thing. It will ruin you in a glorious way. It will mess up your plans in a magnificent way. The glory of God is always heavier than we can conceive. His love is always greater. And His glory is always heavier than we understand. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and here's my point, these three were so loved by the Lord, they are about to be drawn into His glory. He loved them so much that He was about to walk them through the weight of His glory. The Son of God would be glorified to the glory of God. Does that make sense to you all? That what they're about to go through is because Jesus loved them so much, He would take them through this heavy, difficult thing to bring them to glory. To show them something that if they didn't go through that, they would never see. They would not understand. They would not be able to come to know. And so there's hesitation. Not on their part, but on His part. Jesus stays where He is a couple more days. It's interesting, three times in the Gospel of John, John mentions people who are dear to Jesus, who are seeking His help, or His presence, and in all three of these instances, He hesitates. Now there are people He doesn't know at all who come rushing up to Him and ask for healing, and ask for some kind of help, and He gives it immediately. But His mother Mary comes to Him, it says, Lord, they're, they're running out of wine. And Jesus says in John 2, 4, Woman, what does it have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Pause. Alright, let's do this. But he hesitates. He doesn't just immediately rush to her need. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 8, his brothers say, Hey, let's go up to the feast. Let's go up to Sukkot. Up to Jerusalem. He says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Again, he hesitates. 
And here when these dear, beloved sisters call Jesus, they send word of Lazarus' illness, He delays. I think it's the most significant of the three delays. He doesn't rush right up. Number three. Moving quickly tonight. The delay of God is always better than what we might otherwise achieve. The delay of God is always better than what we might otherwise achieve. We can push, we can develop, we can drive, we can advance, we can create, we can come up with all kinds of ways of doing things, surging forward, and we can make big messes. But the delay of God is always better. You know, it takes some maturity to get there. It takes time. I believe I've shared with you all as a younger man, as a young youth pastor especially, I was so frustrated by any delays that would come down from the leadership of the church. Man, that drove me nuts. And now I take great delight in delaying Jake. (laughs) I've learned a few things. One of the greatest is rushing right in is not the best move. Hesitating long enough to seek the will of God is the right move. Listening, paying attention to God's delays is the right move. I would have had us out of the barn in a year, gang. God took 11. I'm so thankful for that. 11 glorious years, 11 tough years at times. 11 frustrating years. And yet God delayed. Why? Because His timing is always perfect. And if we can learn to pay attention to that, to the delay of the Lord, it is divine. And Jesus, He never functioned on a human timetable. You notice that about Him? He never rushed ahead. You can't rush the love of God. Nor can you rush or push the glory of God. And we've seen this in Jesus. Never rushed. Never hurried. Always intentional. On His way because Jairus' daughter is sick to the point of dying going with with this synagogue leader following him and the synagogue leader is rushing along and the crowds are pressing in and Jesus stops and goes, wait a minute, someone touched me. (laughs) Yeah, Lord, Peter says. Everyone's touching you. No, no, I felt power go out from me. Where is she? And he pauses long enough to call a woman who hadn't been touched for, for a dozen years to call her daughter and say your faith has healed you. And then he continues on. Never hurried. He is divinely timely in everything that He does. And that goes for your life and my life as well. The delay of God is always better than what we might otherwise achieve. So Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Rest in the Lord. Cease striving, Psalm 46.10, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Isis, Hezbollah, Hamas, or whoever, I will be exalted in all the earth. So don't fret. Cease striving. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, so may the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness 
Or in other words, the patient waiting of Christ Jesus. So verse 7. Then after He said this to the disciples, or after this, He said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to Him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Bethany, not beyond Jordan, but Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives was literally a stone's throw away from Jerusalem. Stones throw from those who are wanting to throw stones. And the atmosphere was hostile. The environment was oppositional and dangerous, and so the apostles are a little concerned. It seems to me that they've forgotten all about Lazarus at this point. They're just now worried about their own necks. Verse 9, So Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And what is Jesus saying here? The disciples are worried about the risky proximity to Jerusalem. What Jesus is expressing here is a calm certainty. As far as he was concerned, there were still a few hours of daylight left. Oh, not that day, but in his life. When he says, aren't there there not 12 hours in the day, the day has a beginning and an end, just as life does. And he's saying, there's still time, guys. It's not time to worry. In other words, this trip to Jerusalem is not going to be the fall of night. There's still a few hours left in the day. Jesus' path, His entire life, was lit up by the Father's will. And He knew there was still time to do what the Father wanted Him to do. So He paused, and now He's heading to Bethany because He knows this is God's will. And so he, he functions, and we can learn from this, He functions without fear of the dark. Without fear of opposition. That's one thing you never see in Jesus, as well as not hesitating, you never see Jesus afraid. You never see Him shudder but one time. Do you remember when it was? In the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Bible, Luke uses the word, literally he uses the word shudder. Jesus shudders in that moment when He faces all of the sin of mankind. Other than that, He was never afraid. He knew His time. He knew His hour. He knew there were still a few hours left of daylight. And Jesus would often use this kind of imagery in His conversation. Day, night, light, dark. John chapter 13, verse 30. John would use it when when Judas left the last Passover. Bible tells us he went out immediately and it was night. Luke 22:53 When they arrested Jesus in the garden he said this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Paul using the same idea Ephesians 6:12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Are you ever unnerved by the dark? Are you ever worried about the spiritual forces of evil? Are you concerned about the darkness in this world? I still hear far too often 
from people of the light a fear of the dark. I've talked about this before. I bring it up again to say, gang, we do not need to be afraid of the dark. If you're sitting here tonight and you're living and breathing, you still have a few hours left of daylight. How many? I don't know. But we are people of day, not of night. We're the people of the light, not of the dark. This assault, that attack, these demons, I hear Christians using the language a lot. And using it, it's fine to say, hey, I think I'm really being assaulted. Will you pray with me? Hey, that's fine. But it's another thing to go, woe is me, I'm under attack. (laughs) Just demons at every turn. Yeah. There are demons everywhere. There are spiritual forces battling it out, duking it out right now. But I'm a son of light. I belong to Jesus Christ, the victor, who rose from the dead. Over whom death has no power, which means death has no power over me because I belong to Him. I am a son of light. Gang, number four, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the light of the world is always brighter than we perceive. He's always brighter than we perceive. And if you're walking in the light as He is in the light, as long as you have breath, You know, I can do the Father's will without fear of the enemy or fear of the outcome. I just do God's will and truck along in the light. Let me repeat the Good Shepherd's words. I've actually, I think, read this every Wednesday night for three weeks in a row. So hear them again. Jesus said to you, to me, Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke 12.32 He says, Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourself money belts which do not wear out. What's that, Jesus? An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Live for then, not for now. To walk in the light as He is in the light, you are living for then and not for now. We are focused on then, not now. Our eyes are on the prize. Well, doesn't that whole, if, you, if you're all heavenly minded, doesn't that make you no earthly good? That is one of the lamest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will do. And that's the truth of the matter. So even for the murderous threats and imminent death ahead of Jesus, he still saw the light of day. His eyes were on the Father's will, no fear, zero anxiety, perfect peace. So, verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. (laughs) Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. (laughs) Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. (laughs) Brave Thomas. Reminds me of brave Sir Robin. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, forget it. Brave Sir Robert. Brave Thomas! Thomas is ready to go die. I think Thomas has been given a bad rap. 
Because here we see him ready to fight, ready to go with Jesus to death if he must. All right, we're going to go back into the hostile environment. All right, I'm in, Jesus. Let's go. The Aramaic name Thomas, Toma, so the Greek name Didymus means the same thing. It means twin. Thomas the twin. And we see two, two sides of Thomas. We see the side of the doubt, the side that he's known for, the doubting Thomas. But we also see here the side of courage. And I like that about Thomas. Willing to die for the Lord if need be. He knows the weather in Jerusalem. He knows things are bad. And he assumes if they go there, they're going to die. Bring it on, Thomas says. Thomas is the one who courageously asks on that Thursday night, John 14, 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Tell me where to go, man. We hear courage in Thomas. It's not until later on, after the crucifixion, when the others claimed to see Jesus in the upper room, which they had, Thomas would not believe them. That's the moment that he has his bout with doubt. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. And I'm going to save that for for that study. Why did Thomas doubt? Why the struggle? But I'll tell you tonight, it's interesting to me that Thomas wasn't there with the others when Jesus showed up the first time. Why wasn't Thomas there? What were the others doing? Hiding. They were scared spitless. Jesus had been crucified. It had been a long and frightful weekend. And they were hiding out in that upper room when Jesus appeared to them. Thomas wasn't there. Where was Thomas? We have no idea. Perhaps walking the streets of Jerusalem going, Bring it on! (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe Thomas is the one who wasn't afraid, which is why he wasn't there in the first place. Ultimately, we know that Thomas was martyred. Some believe in in, uh, Persia, others believe as far east as India, but that he was speared to death for his faith in the Lord. By the way, there's some speculation about Thomas and about why he was called the twin, where this name or perhaps nickname came from. And there are those who say he was called the twin because he looked so much like Jesus that they called him the twin. That he just perhaps facial structure, beard, hair, I don't know. But had just kind of looked like Jesus. We don't know that. I mean, we can look at Leonardo da Vinci's painting, but I don't think that tells us enough, really. (laughs) Point is, there's a Christ-likeness in Thomas. Even for his doubt, there's a courage there, a willingness to die. And I think to look like Christ, I mean, isn't that our call to be Christ-like, to be twins of the Lord? I believe He wants us to be. But interestingly, back in verse 11, Jesus made this statement. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. We've got to recognize this. That Jesus does not here support the vain idea of soul sleep. Okay? He is not saying that Lazarus is asleep in his soul. Okay? What, what he's saying is his body is asleep. 
And in fact, when you hear the Bible use the word sleep, referring to death, it's a reference to the way the body looks. The body looks asleep, right? But the soul is not asleep. And the Bible does not support that notion in the least. When a person dies, the body looks asleep. The soul, the soul is alive. The soul is eternal, right? So it doesn't go into the grave and then lie around waiting. My precious, my dear grandmother, Irene, she was not there when she passed. Her body was, but her soul was not. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this tonight, but note that Jesus also said Lazarus is dead, verse 14. But that didn't mean his soul was dead, did it? And what did Jesus say to the thief who was just about to die on the next cross over? Luke 23, 43, Truly, truly, I say to you, today, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Why? Because the soul doesn't sleep. The soul goes on. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That is right now. You know where your soul is right now? It's with you. Absent from the Lord. Yes, I know we have the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ indwelling us. I know that. But we are absent in in proximity. We are absent from the Lord. The soul is stuck in the body. But Paul goes on and says, We walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be where? At home with the Lord. So when the soul is absent from the body... Paul says to believers, the soul is with the Lord. And since the cross, get this, every single person who has died in faith, their soul has gone on to be with the Lord. Even if the body looks like it's sleeping. Even if the body is in the grave, the soul is home with Jesus. Now if you want to know more about this and delve into these things and what the Bible really teaches regarding death, I encourage you to go back. We did a teaching on this in Luke 16 called There and Back Again. You want to listen to that. Because the Bible is absolutely clear both about what it meant back before the cross, what it meant during Jesus' lifetime, what it meant in the three days from the cross to the resurrection, and what it meant after the resurrection. All of that is discussed in that teaching, and the Bible is very clear about it. So I encourage you, if you don't understand these things, to check that out. Verse 17, going on. So when Jesus came, He found that He had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet Him. But Mary stayed at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think that must have just kicked Jesus in the gut, you know, to hear that. If you had been here, because he knew what he was doing, he knew what the plan was, but she didn't. And he loved her so. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day in the sweet by and by. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to Him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that You are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. And we talked about this on Sunday. And the marvelous thing about Martha's faith is that though in this moment she doesn't fully get what He's saying, and I don't believe she possibly could have, she knew who He was. She was in essence saying what we from time to time perhaps ought to say. And that's, Lord, I don't understand, but I know You. I don't get this, but I believe You. So regardless of my circumstances, what other people might do or say, what has happened to me here, even though I am without understanding, I know You, I believe in You, You are the Christ, I will trust You in this. And that's where Martha is. Precious, sweet Martha. Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's that fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John. And understand this number five, our fifth always statement, life in Christ must always be personally received. Personally received. Even as Martha calls out, Yes, Lord, I have believed that You are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes in the world. Even as Jesus says, I'm not talking about some concept of resurrection. I'm talking about Me. It's a personal thing, Martha. You're looking at resurrection right now. And life in Christ must be received that way. Personally received. You don't come to a religion. You don't come to a church family. You come to love a person. Because with Jesus, resurrection is always personal. Each and every individual. You all know this. That we're not to settle for church attendance or theological positions. We are to settle into His presence. My hope is that when you come into worship on a Sunday or come here on a Wednesday night, you're not coming to deepen your theology. You're coming because you know Jesus is going to be here. And you want to soak up more of His heart and and hear more of the mind of Christ and, and, and soak in His Spirit. That's a good reason to be here. If you're checking a box, check a box somewhere else because you're wasting your time and mine. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> We're not to craft our personal testimony around ourselves either, but around Christ. Look at it this way. Your witness is your withness. Your witness is your withness. Some people have a witness that goes all into the mess of their lives. And and then the last ten seconds of the witness, and Jesus saved me from that. (laughs) Wow, what a story. As opposed to, I was dead and now I am alive and let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about what it's like to be with Jesus. That's your witness. You know, we're not called to testify to our sin. We're called to testify to our Savior. So our witness is our witness. It's a personal deal. Have you been with Jesus today? Have you been aware of Him? And thinking about Him? Talking to Him? With Jesus? He says, I am the resurrection. And note this, and the life. <laughs> life. You want to be alive? You want to live now and then? 
Because realize it's not just about living then. When I say eyes on the prize and keep your eyes fixed on heaven and be heavenly minded, I'm not talking about waiting and hoping. Just It's terrible now, but eventually it's going to be okay. No, I'm talking about life now that, that grows into everlasting. Because He's the resurrection and the life. And He said, as we read on Sunday, John 14, 19, Because I live, you will live also. And I think Martha gets that. I think Martha, honestly, like Thomas, has gotten a bad rap. She's one of a couple in the Scriptures who just has not been treated fairly. Oh, Martha. Oh, you're a Martha, people will say. Okay, you're not a Mary. You're a Martha. What does that mean? It means you're too busy for Jesus. It means you're working too hard. It means you're focused on all the wrong things. It means you've got all kinds of things on your mind and really only one thing matters. And you're missing it, Martha. Such a Martha. It's not fair. Because Martha is the one here who goes out to Jesus. Mary stays back. And this is a story, this one, that shows us a side of Martha I think we need to see. She's not always the busy bee buzzing around the hive, preoccupied with her with her plans and her cooking and her stuff. The one to whom Jesus said, Luke 10.41, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Guess what? Now Martha chooses the good part. She's running to Jesus. She's seeking Him out. In fact, by the way, it was not proper for her to do what she did. Among the Jewish people, in this day, when you're still mourning a funeral, and you're a woman, you don't go racing out of the house like she did. That was a breach in etiquette. She doesn't care. Why? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I don't care what you say, I'm going to where He is. Jesus is coming. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a breach of etiquette that we are called to. I don't care what you say, I'm running because Jesus is coming. I'm going out to where He is. I'm going to be in His presence. I'm going to do what He calls me to do. Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. And Martha loved His appearing. Martha couldn't wait for Jesus to get to the house. She races out to Him. Do you have faith like that? In the midst of your tragedy... Do you rush to Jesus? I think that's a time when rushing is okay. I'm sorry, I gotta go. I gotta be in His presence. I need some time with my Lord. Verse 28. When she heard this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here and know this and is calling for you. Jesus is so sensitive. He doesn't come into the house. He's not making a scene. He sends Martha. He calls Mary out. Bring Mary. Go get her. Why? So that he can console the sisters out away from the mourners and the crowd and the you know all the hubbub that was happening at the house. Bring her out. Mary, Jesus is calling you. We see Jesus over and over and over moved by compassion. Throughout the Scriptures, this is just 
This is part and parcel the nature of Jesus Christ, a nature of compassion, a sensitive nature. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows how you're feeling, and He knows where to meet you. And in this case says, bring Mary out. Verse 29, And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to Him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. Well, then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, (laughs) supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw Him and fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly what Martha said. Word for word. Well, they're sisters, right? I have a feeling they had said this to each other a few times since Lazarus' death four days prior. If he had been here, if he had only been here, Lazarus would not have died. Martha says it, now Mary says it, and again, if it was me, it would be a kick in the gut. Jesus hears this. Mary doesn't say anything more in the entire passage, in the entire story. All she says, all we can quote of her is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But note this about Mary. While Martha rushes out, while she expresses great faith, she says, I do believe that you are the Christ. Mary says nothing, but we find Mary in a very interesting position. It's the same place we find Mary three times. In fact, every time we see her, she's at Jesus' feet. In Luke 10.39, when everything was fine, all is well, and and, and Mary is at Jesus' feet in their house. Martha's cooking, right? And Mary is... At Jesus' feet. All is well. Here in John 11.32, when all is weeping, Mary's at His feet again. It seems to be a place where Mary is most comforted. At His feet. The next time we see Mary in the Gospel story is John chapter 12, verse 3, when all is worship. She bows at His feet. She anoints His feet with a costly perfume. She wipes it with her own hair. She's at His feet. At His feet listening to His teaching when all is well. At His feet weeping when everything is falling apart. And at His feet worshiping, anointing Him for His own death. Whether she realizes that or not, we'll talk about when we get there. But in every case, she's at His feet. In life, in death, at ease, in sorrow, in wellness, weeping, or worship, it literally makes no difference. Mary is at His feet. I love these sisters. And both of them have such an example. Both beloved by Jesus, both believing in Jesus. It was personal for them, and it was for Him as well. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, See how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so Jesus, again, being deeply moved, came to the tomb 
It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. John takes us through the gamut of Jesus' emotion here. And you got to not miss this. This may surprise you, but the first thing that Jesus feels is not sorrow. It's anger. He's angry. Well, how do you know that? Well, because John uses the phrase deeply moved. Imbramaomai in the Greek. Imbramaomai. Which very specifically means to snort with anger. It's like when you go... Dad, I'll take out the trash later. <laughs> we snort with anger. That's what the word means. And specifically with the M in front of it. You know, there's Brahmaumai, which is to be angry. Imbramaumai means to snort with anger. And that's what Jesus is doing here. When he looks, he sees Mary weeping, he sees all these people weeping, and the first thing he does is he's mad. This is interesting to me. Because then it says he became troubled. He was deeply moved and was troubled. Well, the word troubled, terasso, means stirred up. So now he's snorting with anger and he's stirred up. So the first thing to note about Jesus when he comes into this emotional state is he is ticked off. Verse 33, he's ticked off. Why? I mean, why would Jesus be so deeply indignant and troubled Angry at this situation that is here before him. And some have said, well, maybe he's just frustrated with the people. That's that's not Jesus. That's just not him. I don't think he's mad at anyone there. That would be contrary to his nature. But I think, Rick's opinion here, the anger comes from the circumstances of sin and death and the glee of Satan over what he had accomplished there. The sorrow that he brought... The pain that came with it. And Jesus, that's not what He wants for His friends. This is not why I came into the world, He might say. Why did He come into the world? That they might have life and have it abundantly, but the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. (sighs) He's angry about this. Listen, Jesus is no friend of death. And in this instance, he is stirred up. And then, he tears up. And this is a precious word, this tiny little verse, smallest verse in the Bible. If you're going to, you know, start memorizing scripture, start with this one. (laughs) Jesus wept. The word is dakruo in the Greek, and what it means is a quiet tearfulness. Tears welled up in his eyes. He, He wasn't like. The Hebrew mourners of the day. You know, the professional mourners who would come in and and do all their moaning and weeping to make a big show over the sorrow that's being... No, he just quietly teared up. And I believe the tears now are for Mary and Martha. He really feels their heartache. He's feeling their pain. He is so empathizing. He knows what he's going to do. He knows how good it's going to be literally seconds from then. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. We know that because prior, several days before, he said, this sickness is not to end to death, but for the glory of God. i got something in mind here. But in this moment, he, he tears up. I, 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 don't, I think I've told you the story, but when we picked up our kids in Ghana, we went to the 
to Beacon House. And, and all the kids were gathered around and, and they were praying for Anna Maria and Naomi and David. And there were some tears, you know, and that kind of thing. And I was fine. You know, I'm like, I don't know these people, whatever. You know, we got to get our kids and get out of here. Until Vivian, the caregiver for little David, the woman who had been assigned to David and, and basically had cared for him like a mother for the entire time he had been at the orphanage, which is about eight months, when she handed him to Cheryl and she broke. I lost it. I'm, I'm like a blubbering idiot. I don't know any of these people, but these people are watching me cry like a fool. Now, I knew David was in good hands. I knew he was coming home. I knew we were going to do everything we could for him. I knew he was going to have a family and a house and his siblings were coming too. I knew that this was a good thing. And yet I'm in tears. Why? Because I felt what Vivian was feeling. And I realized in that moment that she had attached to this little guy. She loved him. It was hard for her. So it was hard for me. It was hard for We were all blubbering. It was really messy. <laughs> and so Jesus... He tears up. He's feeling this. Don't think He doesn't get that way with you sometimes. When you are aching over some painful situation, when your heart is breaking, I'm pretty convinced Jesus still tears up. He knows what He's going to do. He knows you're going to be good. He knows the plan's going to be fulfilled and it's going to be glorious and we're all going to be singing hallelujah someday. He knows. But He knows how we feel. So he's ticked off, and then he tears up, and finally he's troubled again in verse 38 as he comes to the tomb. He's deeply moved. He's troubled. He's imbrama omai. He snorts again at this thing called death. This death thing that shouldn't be but for sin and the enemy. And on top of all that, he knows something that they're not thinking, that they don't know, they can't possibly understand. He's going to have to call the soul of Lazarus back from paradise and into Bethany. Should I die before Jesus calls us all home? Don't you dare try to get me back. Lazarus is in the best possible place. He's in paradise. Jesus is going to call him back. And by the way, the new life of Lazarus is going to be fraught with danger. Listen to this. John 12, verse 10. The chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. One death of Lazarus isn't enough? You're going to try and kill him again? So his life is going to be pulled back into this world and into the ugliness of sin and brutality and murderous thoughts from the place of of peace and paradise in which he was. How do you know it was in paradise, Rick? Go back and listen to that sermon there and back again. Luke 16. Check it out. Now you know Jesus knew what he was about to do. So why is he feeling such strong emotions? Number six, jot this down. The sorrow of God is always deeper than we grieve. The sorrow of God is always deeper than we grieve. What are you saying? I'm saying the very depth of my sorrow is not as deep as the sorrow that God has felt and can feel. 
The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. See, I, I bear my grief. When I have pain, when I have sorrow, when I have heartache, I bear that. I, to an extent, perhaps bear a bit of my wife's grief if she's grieving, or my friend's, but but mostly I bear my grief. Jesus bears our grief. All grief. The depth that you can go in sorrow is not near what Jesus has felt. His grief goes far deeper. His grief, listen, our grief is temporary. His is eternal. Now, I'm not saying that God is bummed out eternally. That's not what I'm saying. But the Bible tells us that when it's all said and done, the things that have happened previously will not be remembered by us. Our hurts and our worries and our frets and our cares and the difficulties and people we lost, people we loved who did not end up in heaven. We're going to be so enamored of Christ. I don't know exactly how all this works, but I know that we are going to be fully joyful. And I believe God in His grace is going to give us the grace of forgetfulness so that we won't carry through eternity the thoughts of people who are not with us in heaven. One person will know through all eternity the souls of every person lost. And that is Jesus. My grief doesn't touch His. And I'm not telling you that, again, to say that that Jesus is depressed. He's not. I'm telling you this to say, as low as you feel like you can go, He's beneath you there. He has felt more. And so, by all means, He understands your grief. He understands your pain. Like nobody, literally nobody can. So when the Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, I know His sorrow has been great. I know that He is capable of grieving, profound grieving, because people profoundly matter to Him. You think you're upset if someone is lost? Think about how He feels. Because as deep as His love, so deep is His pain for a person who is lost. The sorrow of God is always deeper than we grieve. So verse 38, continuing on, he's, he's in this deeply moved place. He's angry at death. He's frustrated by these things. It was a cave with a stone lying against it, typical in the Middle East. Verse 39 going on says, Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, sister of the deceased, said to Him, Lord, By this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. That's just, you know, again, supporting the validity of what had happened here. Lazarus was absolutely, unequivocally dead. No question about it. So dead that if they move the stone away, it's not going to be good. Martha says, we can't do this. Jesus said to her, verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see? The glory of God. Now, if you're flipping back to see where Jesus exactly said that, we don't have it here. In other words, John's given us the highlights. More happened that we don't know. 
There was more conversation between Jesus and Martha, Jesus and Mary, that that we don't have recorded. We only have recorded what we need to see here, but there were more personal things said, one of which apparently was Jesus said, Martha, if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. So now they're at the tomb. She questions rolling back the stone. Jesus says, I got this one. So verse 41, they removed the stone. And Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And all this time, now we know what Jesus was doing. He was praying. The whole time he's interacting with Mary and Martha, as he's going out to the tomb, Jesus is in constant prayer. He's talking to the Father. They're discussing their plan of action. What's going to take place? Jesus is praying. And now, what he shares is the assurance of the Father hearing him. Now pause for a moment, because some of you might say, that's weird. Because if Jesus is God, he knows what he's going to do. So why is he talking to God about what he's going to do when he knows what he's going to do? And why is now he sharing that he's got the assurance of the Father to do what he's about to do when he is one with the Father? (laughs) It's that whole Jesus praying to God thing that freaks people out. It shouldn't. It's a very simple explanation, and that is that Jesus exemplifies in the flesh the very relationship with God that He invites us to. Yes, He and the Father are one, but the reason why He became God in the flesh is so that we could see in the flesh what it meant to be in a relationship with God. He he walks it out for us. It's absolutely perfect. It's brilliant. That all these years God's looking at humanity and He knows humanity does not quite get Him. And so He says, well, you know what? I'm going to put on flesh so that they can see Me in action. And at the same time that Jesus is that perfect example of God in the flesh, He's also the perfect example of man in the flesh in relationship with God. And so he's showing, he's revealing, and by the way, he's not just acting here. I'm going to pretend like I'm praying. No, he really is. He's living it out. Living out human life in deep personal, emotional relationship with God. Intimate relationship so that we can understand that, comprehend it. And so verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Why did he say that? Because if he didn't, everybody would have come forth. (laughs) He had to be specific. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, get this. Jesus sees him. He calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out all bound up. Wrapped up in his grave clothes. He comes out of the grave in the grave clothes. He has the shroud, the burial shroud, still around his head. He can't even see where he's going. It's like... (laughs) He comes out this way. After Jesus' resurrection, when John and Peter ran to the tomb and stooped and looked in, what did they see? Listen to this. John 20, verse 5. He saw, that is John, saw the linen wrappings lying there. 
But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. Lazarus comes out of the tomb wearing his grave clothes because he would need them again. Jesus were all folded up and set aside because he would never need them again. Lazarus came bound. Even in his resurrection, Lazarus was bound with mortal life. Jesus in his resurrection was not bound, but was free unto eternal life. And this this seventh sign of John, remember we've seen these signs now, one after another, seven through the Gospel. The seventh sign of John is here to direct us. That's all the signs are for, is to get us looking in the right direction, at the right person. And the seventh one was to direct us to the far greater resurrection of Jesus Christ, not unto death again, but unto life eternal. John 5.25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And then He shows us. Lazarus, come forth! And out Lazarus comes. What does that tell you? It tells you that when Jesus says, Rick, come forth! I'm going! And I'm leaving my grave clothes behind. Because I, like Jesus, will no longer need them. And think about this. He, the way he handles this is so amazing. He, he could have, with a word, blasted away the stone. And that would have been cool. Stone be gone! Lazarus, come forth! You know, and he would have floated out. You know, This is Hollywood doing this. And Jesus could have said, Be ye clothed and a new suit and tie. But Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. First He says, roll away the stone. Jesus, why don't you just do it? That'd be more powerful looking, you know? That'd be cool. But He tells them, roll away the stone. So they do. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. And He says, unbind him. Why not just, you know, do the snappy thing? Why blink or something? Do something magical and get the, you know, so now all of a sudden He's dressed. Why? Because Jesus always involves the people. He invites people into the process. Remove the stone. Unbind him. Let him go. Jesus involves the family, involves the mourners, involves the friends in this act of resurrection. All Jesus says is, Lazarus, come forth. I love the simplicity of the miracles, by the way. They are so simple. This has been a key word for us recently. Several of us having conversation. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. We don't need to get convoluted as a church fellowship. We don't need to get all caught up in all kinds of things. Just, man, just follow Jesus. Just talk about Him. Prayer, the ministry of the Word. We don't need anything else. Jesus just says, come forth. And He invites the people into the process of resurrection. He says, remove the stone. He might say to you and me, take away the obstacles in someone's life. He says, unbind them. Man, every time we share the gospel of His grace, we're unbinding people. He says, let them go. Let them go. Let them go into the freedom of Christ. We're part of the process. Number seven. The plan of God always invites us to roll up our sleeves. 
Always invites us to roll up our sleeves. Always invites us to engage in His process, in what He's doing. Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view, Paul says, of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. You realize that's what's going on here. As we equip tonight... We are together participating in the gospel. That's not my job. It's ours. That's not my work. It's ours. It's not my sleeves to roll up. They're our sleeves. And so on Sunday morning, as Dan got into the waters of baptism, I baptized him. And his daughter Anna and his son Ben were next to be baptized. And Dan did it. His participation in the gospel. I didn't need to do that. By the way, you don't need the pastor to do it. Do it yourselves. <laughs> kidding. But if you bring someone to Jesus, you ought to be in the water. And that's just a physical example. Who's to be bringing people to Jesus? We are. This is our participation in the Gospel. Our work of the Kingdom. Jesus says, unbind them. Let them go. Roll away the stone. Do the work, man. You get to be part of what I'm doing. Hebrews 3.14 For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 You are now a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are called to participate in the Gospel. And it is the most marvelous invitation of any we can hear except the invitation to salvation itself. Once you're saved, participate. This is not a spectator sport. Just as Jesus did not invite spectators at the sepulcher, so we are not invited to be spectators of His miracles. We're invited to be involved and engaged. Verse 45. Therefore, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. And note this, some will. Some will believe. Some will betray. Verse 46. But some of them went out to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. See, that's what religious people do. They convene councils. They they call together groups and they make plans and they scheme and they craft and they work the problem. They were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And that was their problem. They were concerned about their position. They were concerned about their place on church row. What if the Lord came to us and said, listen, I think the bridge has done everything that I want it to do, and so we need to close the doors and and encourage people to go to all the other churches. Now, I don't think He's going to do that. What if He did? Would we fight for it? Well, this is our church, Lord. We spent the last 11 years working for this. Have you seen the baptistry? Come on! But see, that's where the Pharisees were. This is our nation. No, it's not. Last I checked, it was God's. 
Well, this is, this is, this is our position. This is our authority, our power. No, 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 no. There is no power except that which is given from above, as Jesus said. So they're having their little council. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I love this guy. He's just so snooty. You know, he's the consummate high priest in terms of, well, no, he's not. Jesus is the consummate high priest. But here's Caiaphas. Above them all, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Verse 52, And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, if this wasn't in the Bible, and I tried to give this to you as a possibility, you would think I was nuts. If I said to you, by the way, you know why Caiaphas said that? I think he was prophesying. He was high priest after all, so clearly he was in the position to be a prophet. So I think he was prophesying. If we didn't have John's commentary on this, I think very easily you could say, Rick, that's just weird. So let me be clear. Rick is not the one coming up with this. The Apostle John is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the living God, we know for a fact that Caiaphas, who is the arch enemy in this moment of Jesus Christ, was prophesying of the work of the cross, not only for the Jews, but for all the Gentiles, all the children of God worldwide. Wow. Is God cool or what? Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there He stayed with the disciples. We are now just days away from the final week of Jesus. His death, His glorious resurrection. The seven signs of John's record are done. Signs, postings, uh, signals. Signboards, if you will, of the divine nature of Jesus. It all leads us up to this moment. Now we have, if we were reading this for the first time, if we didn't know the story, if we didn't know where it was going, we will have come to a crossroads where we stop and all the signs to get us to where we need to be have been seen. What do you know of Jesus now? What do the signs tell you about His nature? He's yet to die. He's yet to be resurrected. And yet... The signs, one after another, have shown us His divinity. But you know what's interesting to me? In this seventh sign, this glorious resurrection act of Jesus, we see His divinity. But when I go back and look at all the rest and compare them to this one, it's this sign in which we see more than any other His humanity. We see the Son of Man, angry at death, weeping with His friends, angry at this rock tomb that it even has to be here at all. We see Him trusting in the Lord that there are 12 hours in the day. We see Him compassionate and tender with the sisters. 
We see Him involving the people. We see His humanity and it is absolutely marvelous. And because we can see His humanity, it takes us all the way around to the very first thing I told you. God's love is always greater than we believe. For those whom He foreknew, Paul wrote, Romans 8.29, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. But He did it by becoming Himself a human being. Praise God. Lord Jesus, though we have yet to study and come to this this glorious story of Your resurrection, we know of it. We declare it. We just did on Sunday. We, we declare it every day of our lives as we live for You and to You. Because we know and we proclaim that You are alive. And because You live, we will live also. But Father, I, I want to thank You for Your humanity. We praise You for Your divinity. But Jesus, we thank You for Your humanity. And as we go from this place tonight, I just would ask, Lord, that You would remind us yet again how much You love each and every person here. How tenderly You care about us and for us. And how much You know exactly what You're doing in our lives. May we trust that because, Lord, we trust You. In the name of Jesus we pray tonight. Amen.